Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the upcoming state election in New South Wales and the surging number of independents running in conservative seats at the federal election. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Jill Shepherd. Jill is a lecturer in politics at the ANU and her research focuses on public opinion and political behaviour in Australia. Hello, Jill. Uh, good day, Ben. And my second guest is Anthony Green. Anthony is the ABC's electoral an- analyst and has covered over 60 Australian elections since 1989. Welcome, Anthony. Good evening. The New South Wales state election will be held next month, and one important factor in the election will be the use of optional preferential voting. Almost every other single-member election in Australia requires voters to mark every preference on their ballot, but in New South Wales, voters are only required to mark one box. Anthony, how do you think OPV will affect this election? Well, it's interesting to track the history of this subject because... Optional preferential voting was Labor policy about 1918. It was introduced in Queensland, in New South Wales in 1980 um, to stop three-cornered contests. But it predated the growth of lots and lots of minor parties in recent years. And so the Labor parties tended to come to uh, regret ever having done this. Uh, it stopped three-cornered contests. The Liberals and the Nationals no longer run against each other. But in recent years, with the growth of the Greens, it's actually cut off a source of preferences to the Labor Party. And you certainly saw in Queensland when they abandoned optional, uh, abandoned optional preferential voting last year, it was partly about Labor Party trying to ensure they got strong flows of Green preferences. What we have seen with optional preferential voting in recent years is the Greens with their how-to-vote cards, um, under full preferential voting, it doesn't matter whether the Greens direct preferences or not, the flow is always strong to Labor. But with how-to-vote cards in New South Wales, the preference flow to Labor is about 20 to 30% lower in seats where they don't direct preferences than, than where they do. So it's had an important fact on that. And so where Labor started the tactic of saying just vote one, and people forget when optional preferential voting first came in, both major parties continued to recommend full preferential voting. It was only in the 90s it started to appear as a just vote one as a tactic. Um, Labor adopted it first, and as the Greens emerged onto politics, suddenly Labor stopped doing just vote one, and the coalition picked it up. And the last New South Wales election, the coalition didn't direct preferences to another candidate in any seat. It was just vote one. And it's likely to be the same tactic at this election, partly to try and shut that down, that green Labor preference flow. But also, they have another problem in this election, is that there's been a surge in minor parties of the right. And the coalition wants to try and stop the flow of preferences between the Labors and the Shooters and the Shooters and One Nation. They're more likely to have the highest first preference vote, so it's in their interest to try and minimise the number of preferences floating around. And uh, it can be an interesting tactic at this election. One of the experiences of OPV has been that both sides of politics have benefited or suffered from it at various times. Uh, But while recently it has been the Labor Party and the Greens where those preferences have been exhausting, I I do wonder how much New South Wales, we're going to have a different experience in 2019 because of those right-wing minor parties. I mean, one of the things about Queensland was immediately after optional preferential voting was abolished, uh, we saw the rise of One Nation again. And I suspect, uh, like in the late 90s, Queensland Labor would have benefited from a lot more of those uh, One Nation preferences exhausting if they hadn't changed the voting system. So I do wonder if we're seeing a bit of a pendulum swing back that when these voting system changes happen, they may benefit one side, but that's not a permanent arrangement. That's certainly the case, and I think. But the thing that will work for the National Party's favour, because it's mainly a National Party problem, is that as long as their first preference is the highest, 
they can still win. We saw in the Orange by-election when they lost to the shooters, fishers and farmers, the exhaustion rate nearly allowed the Nationals to win. So as long as the Nationals have got the highest first preference vote, it's in their interest to discourage the flows of preferences between the other candidates. So it, it's going to be a rather complex election night in New South Wales because more than any... Queensland's the other state where this is occurring. We're seeing a um, a breakaway from two-party politics, but the breakaway from two-party politics is very regional. It happens mm. in certain seats, mm. certain areas, and you get sort of not. It's not always Labor versus Liberal. It's Labor versus Greens in the inner city. It's Liberal versus Greens in the northern parts of Sydney. It's National versus Shooters and Fishers in the country. So we're seeing a breakaway from two-party politics in New South Wales with this complication of um, optional preferential voting. On, on what you were just saying, Anthony, and Ben's question as well, how well do you think the parties actually predict these preference flows? Because I'm, you know, and I've sort of said it, I think, on, on Ben's podcast before and in other venues, that I'm pretty sceptical about both major parties' ability to predict anything very well and to judge their own best strategy. So these Vote One ca- um, campaigns, how well do they actually work? They can work quite well. I mean, if you look at... It certainly worked for Peter Beattie in 2001 in Queensland. Yep. It just dried up all the preferences between the, the third parties. By 2012, when Labor was thumped in Queensland, it was Campbell Newman saying, just vote one. Um, the Greens were a bit ambivalent about preferences in seats, and there was a huge drop-off in Green preferences. You notice it particularly with the Greens. Their preferences go up and down depending on what they think of the Labor Party at any particular time. And you can see why Labor is concerned about optional preferential voting in the Greens, is that Green voters... If they don't like either major parties, they'd be quite happy to just exhaust. And that's what the major parties hate about optional preferential voting. So maybe optional preferential voting may not hurt the nationals, particularly in their contest against the shooters, because a lot of those seats are seats where like Labor is not competitive, right? And it may be a situation where the nationals are able to stay ahead of the shooters because a lot of those Labor preferences exhaust or vice versa, particularly because there seems to be news today that... Uh, the Liberals are at least the Liberals and the Nationals are at least suggesting that Labor and the Shooters might be trying to arrange preference swaps in some of those seats. I do wonder about places like what, um, the possible rise of the One Nation vote in Western Sydney, though, or places like that, which may have more marginal seats. And in those races, you could imagine uh, there being more of those votes that um, may exhaust. It's it's interesting. I mean, certainly that hurt the coalition very badly in 1999 in New South Wales when One Nation was everywhere and their preference is exhausted. In 1999, it's pretty clear if you look at the electoral politics. I mean, there's a lot of confusion when One Nation first arose in the 90s about where they were drawing their support from. And and I'd like to say they tended to take the what in England they call the working-class Tories. They, they, looked, people, they looked like working-class voters, but they probably voted Conservative already. And if you look at the Australian election study, voters tend to put One Nation in the middle of politics, not to the right, which is where most commentators describe them, mm. Um, the voters themselves don't view One Nation as necessarily... They view them to the left of the coalition. One Nation received a lot of preferences from Labor voters in the Senate in 2016 in places like Western Sydney, that's it's that's for sure. simple. Well, I mean, the Liberal Party received a lot of preferences in the Senate from the, from the Labor Party. Voters, when giving their own preferences, tend to go to mm. parties they know, and One Nation is a, is a known quantity. It's the shooters and fishers and the Labor Party preferences which are most interesting. Labor preferences have helped the Shooters' Party win in, in the Orange by-election, helped them in the Murray by-election. But the Shooters themselves, their voters are completely tactical. They're not ideological in their preferences. And the Shooters are saying, we want to make a hung parliament, we want to mm. influence the result, and we can influence the result with our preferences, and they go one way or the other. They're, 
to me, it strikes me that they're very tactical and non-ideological. They've got a goal or what they want to achieve with the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party, which is to destabilise party politics in, in the state. And they will do that with their preferences. And that you've seen that tactic occur in a half a dozen by-elections since the last state election in New mm. South Wales. Jill? Look, I, I think Anthony's spot on and that it's it's not ideological necessarily to want to, you know, um, disrupt the parliament, you know, to throw a spanner in the works, but it's it it's incredibly rational, you know, and if you don't, if you don't, uh, you know, adhere to the kind of two major party system that we have here, and if you want to shake it up, there aren't that many ways that we can do it. And so the shooters and fishers, you know, the independents who are starting to bob up all around the place, they're the best uh, opportunity that most voters have to actually try to make the system look a little bit different. So I think it has been a deliberate strategy. I think we don't look closely enough at, at these independent parties. We're uh, too, clo- uh, too quick to write them off as cranks or, or whatever. But as Anthony says, you know, someone like One Nation, they're, they're a known quantity now for a lot of voters. And uh, voters, even if they do think that they are ideologically extreme, I think uh, do value the fact that they are different, they are... Uh, not inside this, oh, I'm so sorry to say it, but like this Canberra bubble idea, that they're doing something different and that maybe they've, they've got ideas about parliamentary reform. You know, Now, these aren't spelled out explicitly because no-one wants to run an election on a, on a uh, platform of parliamentary reform, but I think they're kind of nascent issues, right, that are underpinning a lot of these uh, independents and minor parties. So, you know, OPV or not, I think the major parties have got a real battle on their hands here that they seem to really have their heads in the sand over. One of the factors I've noticed with optional preferential voting in New South Wales is, uh, like you were saying earlier, for the Greens, they actually have quite a bit of power over over how much they are willing to direct preferences in a way they don't under the federal system. And I know certainly in like 2011, when the Labor Party was very unpopular, uh, the Greens basic, they didn't bother to do a preference deal with Labor. They, they only preferenced Labor candidates in a couple of seats. And you know, maybe maybe the preference flows would have dropped anyway, but I do wonder if it's possible. You know, this isn't the most inspiring or um, or exciting Labor opposition in New South Wales, but I do wonder if a bit of disillusionment with the Liberal Party might mean that those preference rates on the on the left of politics might might move up a bit. Yeah, interesting to see. I certainly think I suspect that the Labor Party might direct preferences in every seat. It's only eight weeks before a federal election. At the last state election, they were issuing one only how to vote cards in all the electorates with high migrant populations. The same electorates that at federal elections have huge informal vote rates. If they're handing out how to votes with just mm. one at the state election, they may be hitting their vote a couple of weeks later at the federal election. So I'm interested to see what the Labor Party do with that. The Greens, the Greens have got themselves into a, I think, a, they haven't got themselves into a bind, but they direct preferences based on ideology that say we don't do deals. Mm. So they always direct preferences to Labor or don't direct, but they certainly don't go to the coalition, um, which is why I thought it was a bit hypocritical when they complained about the the, Green, the Liberal Party switching from tactical preferences to the Greens to ideological preferences for Labor. Um, uh, I'm still waiting for the Liberal Party to finally work out that the Labor Party had an interesting idea in the 80s, was in three-cornered contests, they directed preferences in a manner to most disrupt the coalition. Mm. You know, I'm waiting for the Liberal Party to say, well, we'll direct Labor preferences to Labor where there's Green MP and to the Greens where there's a Labor MP, which is one way around some of the combination between tactics and ideology, which you can use in preferences. But uh, mm. it still shows the clear thing, and I've done some work on this, 
you have to hand out how to vote cards. If you don't hand out how to vote cards, you don't get preference flows. And you can see the green vote, the preference flows goes up the higher their vote and the higher their vote you can take as a marker of they're actively campaigning. Mm. And so I think what you can see is you can, you can overestimate the importance of preferences, but of course the, the stronger a campaign, the more likely people are to get a how to vote card. The more how to vote cards you distribute, the more likely people are to follow them. I know in the 2015 Queensland state election, there was much more of a campaign to actively encourage progressive voters to swap preferences and to give their preferences. And it kind of focused a lot on the importance of marking preferences. And it, I think it did have an effect. I mean, the preference flows probably would have gone up anyway after three years of Campbell Newman. But you saw... Um, much higher preference flows from the Greens to Labor. And I do think whether it is, I mean, it's definitely how to vote on election day, but it also was having a kind of active campaign where it becomes a thing that you tell people, this is this is a thing you should do, it's important. It can actually have an impact. People get very confused about how to vote cards. The only reason the major parties hand out how to vote cards is one, to get last minute votes. There are people who turn up who have no idea who they're going to vote for and you stick a how to vote card in the hand and it's the only one they get and they might vote for it. That's the the view in the major parties. The second is if someone's voting for you, you want them to cast a formal vote. That's Mm. why you give them an example. So that sits there. Thirdly, um, with the minor parties, you want to try and influence preferences. But there's a new tactic developed recently and it started in Queensland and it's spreading, which is to say put so-and-so last. So in Queensland, it was put the LNP last. In Victoria, at the recent election, there were the unions were handing out put the Liberals last, and that has the tactic. And um, Karen Phelps mucked it up in Wentworth. What she was trying to say: if you vote for a third party, then put the Liberal last, and it got misconfused as being you should put the Liberals last, which wasn't what she was saying. Um, you'll see that in in Warringah, I'm absolutely certain put Tony Abbott last. That's what everyone will be saying. That has an influence. It doesn't influence your voters. It influences other voters. That's what the Just Vote One strategy was. It was trying to appeal to people who weren't voting for you, but you were trying to encourage them to do something with their preferences. And I think that's the big change we're seeing. And it's certainly um, a party on the nose struggles when, with, to counteract that message. I was going to ask about that, Anthony. Uh, you know, this all seems inordinately complicated, right? And we already have an incredibly complicated electoral system in Australia. We know that. We have high rates of informal voting, particularly in uh, electorates with high uh, rates of migrants from non-English-speaking backgrounds. Surely at some point there is a, strateg- a sound strategy in saying just vote one because voting's already on the nose and so people don't really want to be there anyway. They want to get in and out. It's easier for a lot of people to understand, and particularly in those migrant uh, in those migrant dense seats, it's got to uh, increase the rates of formal voting. You mean talking about say switching to f- optional preferential voting at a federal election? Well, no, no, not that. Well, the... God, I couldn't couldn't imagine anything worse at the moment. But where you do have OPV to the major for the major parties to you know, and perhaps only in certain seats, but just go with a carte blanche, just vote one strategy. Well, what we do know from federal elections is over the last two decades as just vote one has become a bigger pack tactic in queensland and new south wales the proportion of just vote one informal votes at federal elections are higher in new south wales and queensland than any other state exactly so, so there's clearly a learning process going on there which people just vote one at a state election and then do the same thing at a federal election it's informal We've recently seen the publication of the informal vote research from the 2016 election and the biggest change was uh, nearly uh, more than half of the just of the one votes in the House disappeared with the new Senate system. Yep. And they did see a small increase in the people voting one to six in the lower House, which is a little oddity. But it does show the importance of instructions and examples. 
And um, and I'm I'm a strong believer that they need to find some way to make more of those votes formal. Um, Because if someone's voted, as I say, in the the Bradfield by-election in 2009, 74,000 voters, the Liberal got 56%. There were 22 candidates. And they checked all 74,000 ballot papers for a sequence of 1 to 22 when not one preference in the entire election was required. Absolutely. And we we rule out far too many votes. I think this is something that we need to look carefully at. I I feel like it was an interesting experience in the last federal election in the Senate where... uh, you know, I feel like we've often had this approach of either either let people do whatever they want with their ballots or be really restrictive with formality. And with the Senate, we we didn't quite say anything goes, but we came we came pretty close to that. Most most sequential votes counted as as formal votes, and we relied a lot on uh, the AEC running a campaign, telling people to number multiple boxes, having. Uh, AEC staff in booths telling people to number one to six. Maybe some of them, uh, unfortunately, encourage people to only number one to six, but still. And even though we have other elections with a similar voting system where lots, most people vote just one above the line, nearly everyone preference multiple boxes. And it's kind of, I feel like as a policy position, there's value in the idea that you say the actual rules around formality are loose and let, let most votes count. But we have a well-funded very active, very like loud-voiced effort by the Electoral Commission to tell people to number every box or to number lots of boxes. I, I also think there's a chronic problem with preferential voting um, is people try to explain it by explaining how the votes are counted. And you need to explain preferential voting by how to fill in your ballot paper. Mm. And uh, it's like if you talk to any hair clerk advocates and they drag out preference formulas and, you know, and surplus transfer values. And you can just see an average voter just glaze over within 30 seconds. Um, you just you just number the candidates in the order you want to see them elected. And you don't get into complex preference strategy tactics. And, you know, it's just you, you, mass marketing told people number the candidates in the order you want to see them elected. And then people ask me, what if, what if I want to make sure this, because it comes up under optional preferential voting, I want to vote for so-and-so last. Um, how do I do that under optional preferential voting? I said, well, you'll have to vote for a lot of candidates you've never heard of. If you're happy to vote for candidates you've never heard of, and you can assume that none of them are Nazis or mad communists, just so you can put someone last, go ahead and do it, but you don't know. It's, it is incredibly complicated. I think we, we don't uh, give voters enough credit for how well most voters understand it, right? And especially uh, non-English-speaking background voters. They do an amazing job. We, we have a very, very high barrier to understanding how to vote in Australia. And I think Anthony's spot on. We try to overcomplicate, you know, the story behind it, when really, if we just said, here's how you make your vote counted, the Electoral Commission does a good job. But I think at the end of the day, when, and literally at the end of, of Election Day, when we've got um, partisan scrutineers, you know, ruling out papers on the on fairly flimsy grounds a lot of the time, then we're still going to have this problem. And it's hard to overcome. I don't really see a a quick fix to it. There's those moments on Twitter when I talk about filling all the squares and the two things you always get back is people who say, you don't have to fill in the last box and I think, oh God, you know, <laughs> trivia. And the second one is, you can use Roman numerals and I say, well, you can, whether it gets counted or not, you won't know. But It's also a pretty uh, jerky move for whichever poor person ends up being stuck with that vote at uh at 8.30 at night after a long work day. Yes, I can imagine your 394 squares filled in with Roman numerals. You know, it's just not going to happen. There's a guy in Victoria who does this every time, just, just to make himself known. Just to go back slightly to the, about the put the X last sort of campaign. I remember first seeing that kind of in the early to mid-2000s as something that often um, 
groups that were on the left would use uh, specifically in contexts where they weren't really comfortable with picking a side between Labor and the Greens. So yeah. they might be groups that are reasonably far left and might agree with the Greens more, but um, don't want to alienate Labor or things like that. Or I remember seeing some of the less closely ALP-aligned unions using the tactic a bit. So I do think there was a bit of it being used in contexts where someone wants to advocate a vote against someone but doesn't really... Um, can't can't simply say vote for this person first and and it does have that kind of effect but it does have a danger when the person you are strongly campaigning against isn't actually the person you like the least on the ballot you know you say put the liberals last but aha there's a there's a fascist or there's a one nation candidate who's also running it's interesting um i did some work on the ballot papers in the last New South Wales election and it was interesting to see how often the Greens voters would put the Christian Democrats last and the Christian Democrats would put the Greens last on the opposite sides of the spectrum. You see a lot of that. Um, you'd see on a how to vote card where people would guess the sort of sequence. You see a lot more people go one Greens, two Labor than is actually indicated by a how to vote card. And that number, um, the number of Greens who follow a how to vote card is diminished when it's not the Green, the Labor candidates put second. They go and do something else. We saw it in the upper house where the Labor Party got a lot of preferences, which was not the how to vote card of the Greens. Um, the other thing that I, th- I think we're seeing is that voters are making up their own mind and, do- and doing a, a few odd things like that. But it's it's getting complex for people to understand some of these systems and people have a natural inclination to go one particular way and i think parties that direct preferences away from what's the obvious view of their voters will find more of their voters don't follow it at, at the end of the day we know that voters rely on ideological shortcuts and if and if you do throw that if the how to vote card disrupts the shortcut that they're expecting to see so if you've got liberal party uh you know liberal party um um, preferencing, say, uh, the Greens before Labor, that just, you know, it, it sort of messes with the synapses in your brain and all of a sudden you're thinking, well, I, I don't know where any of these parties stand and, and the parties are telling me via their how to vote cards that my, you know, my sort of uh, instinct was wrong. And so that's a real trap for the voter, for the parties too, I think. I also think since One Nation's been around, the how do votes have become more complex? Because everyone's asking, you haven't put one nation last or you've put this party before that party. Um, most of these preferences don't matter. Yeah. Um, but, and so you get these, you're getting increasingly complex how to vote cards. The parties love it when they're number one and their preferred second party's number two because they'll just go straight down the ticket and that's a much easier how to vote card. And we'd love to do some behavioural um, uh, political science on this and give people how to vote cards and see how many they get right because I have the suspicion people don't just number down the ballot paper like on the how to vote card they actually feel in the numbers in sequence and so if the sequence is in a strange order they're more likely to get it wrong well I mean I have an anecdote from uh, I, I was the Greens candidate for the Werribee by-election in 2005 I believe there were 16 candidates mm. and um, the Greens went through in sort of a they genuinely weighed up all the options and said, this is our preferred order. And they sent off the person who was doing the layout for the how to vote to lay out a how to vote. And he comes back and goes, here's the how to vote. And we look at him and go, it's informal. You've, um, <laughs> you've been filling out a ballot in a design program and you've managed to fail to sequentially number 16 boxes. So in the end, they decided to, and I, I see this pattern often when you look at how to vote in elections with a lot of candidates, is you see... Uh, a simplified version where it's like these are the couple of people we really care about either we like them or we really don't like them and then everyone else will put in a straight order and it, it's a rational thing andrew lee who's a good economist and likes all these behavioral experiments yeah. he was um 
drew the number one spot in Fraser a couple of years back in the ACT. And so I just decided to number straight down the ballot paper. And he had some right-wing party ahead of the Greens and the Canberra Times had a fit, fit of indignation about this. And Andrew, tra- Andrew tried to explain, you know, the whole purpose of our heart of vote card is to ensure formal votes. It's got nothing to do with preferences. And no, no, they still pilloried him. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it's one of those oddities that uh, we are increasingly people look at that heart of vote card and try to impute some view of the party. Symbolic, right? They get released beforehand and you talk about it. That's rough on Andrew Lee, though. More and more voters have been choosing to cast their votes early at each successive election. At the 2015 New South Wales state election, just over two-thirds of votes were cast as ordinary election day votes. There were big increases in people choosing to vote using pre-poll and using iVote, the internet voting system. Experience from other elections suggests that we should expect even more voters to vote early at the next election. Jill, how do you think the growing popularity of pre-poll voting affects the election campaign? two ways of looking at it and what the sort of conventional wisdom is that campaigns matter right if campaigns don't matter then what the hell are we doing for you know 33 days every three years that there is something about the release of information that it either changes our votes during the course of the election campaign or it might you know shore up how we were going to vote anyway when we're getting more than a third of voters voting before election day it doesn't necessarily change how people vote because the sort of academic, you know, political science literature tells us that campaigns don't really change that many votes at all. So either way, we have to sort of confront, I guess, a, a, some sort of reality. And it's either that campaigns don't matter, and so it doesn't matter when we vote. Campaign launches all of these things. You know, it, it feels like decades ago, well, I guess it was, that uh, Howard and Costello were splashing money around at every campaign launch and, you know, just millions on millions on millions those things that don't sort of happen so much now because we're all frugal and we went into that period of austerity after 2007. But it hasn't really come back, that high spending election campaign style. Or we accept that early voting is kind of problematic because it does mean that people are missing out on information that gets released during the campaign. So I think either way, we're sort of accepting new facts. You know, we, we have to sort of update our priors about what we know about Australian politics. And I don't know which way it goes yet, really, but it's incredibly interesting. There's been a bit of research on this. The Victorian Electoral Commission's done some good work on it. And Stephen Mill from Sydney University's done some work on it. He doesn't like um, convenience voting. Um, the research in the Victorian Election Commission was much more about why people convenience vote. And once they've done it, they do it again. That's why the growth keeps going, is people having done this convenience voting much more likely to do it again. Um, I've heard people say, oh, Labor misses out. In, in other countries, pre-poll voting and postal voting boosts the turnout, and therefore it, the political issue is the boost the turnout. Does this have an impact? In Australia, it doesn't change the turnout. It just changes when people vote. Exactly. Does it change the way they vote? I'm not sure. Postal voting... Uh, people keep pointing out, oh, the trend has been against the Labor Party for years on postal voting. Well, the Labor Party's given up on arranging postal votes. Postal votes is either remote rural votes or a lot of infirm and elderly who can't get out on the day. They're people who would vote Liberal anyway. That's right. So the Labor Party's view is if they encourage postal votes, they just encourage Liberal votes so they don't do it, leave it for the Liberal Party to organise. Yep. It's interesting to look at the I votes in New South Wales is... One peculiar thing of iVotes is the way the ballot paper is filled in electronically is different from a paper ballot paper. The number of people who gave preferences in New South Wales with iVote was about 20 to 30% higher than any other category because the ballot paper comes up electronically and says, do you want to give another preference? And so they do, and then they give another one. Um, and it was quite funny, even the Liberals who advocated just vote one had a much higher rate of preferences with iVote 
I think because of the structure of the ballot paper, um, and also because people on iVote never got a how to vote card. So there's a, a few peculiarities there. But as far as early voting, the parties have got to be much more organised about getting out there. The Wentworth by-election was interesting. The Karen Phelps was organised quite late, wasn't outside a lot of the early voting centres early, wasn't involved in the postal votes, um, and it was just clobbered in the postals and the pre-polls compared to the on-the-day on the day votes. Um, uh, certainly in the 2014 state election in Victoria, there was a court case afterwards from one of the minor parties complaining that they were allowing too many pre-poll votes without asking people to justify why they were doing it, and that was disadvantaging minor parties and independents. And I certainly think that's an issue for some of the minor parties is they now have to staff these pre-polls. The Labor Party and Liberal Party and the Greens have learnt they have to do that now and it's having an impact. But certainly um, you see some different categories of votes having different impacts. Uh, but it's made the campaign longer and it's probably disadvantaged some of the minor parties to some extent. Yeah, I think it shores up the, you know, as with most of the things that the major parties do, it, sh- uh, it is shored up support for the two of them and anything that entrenches the power of the two major parties at the expense of information generally, I think, is probably a bad thing. Then on the other hand, I think, well, we have this high barrier to to voting in the first place, and we do fine you $20 if you don't vote. So it's almost morally incumbent on, you know, on, on the government, but, you know, the executive government to, to provide as much uh, opportunity to vote as possible. So I'm really torn on it. I wish I had a stronger opinion. So the increase in pre-poll votes has also meant that there's a much lower proportion of the vote that's happening at like local polling booths on election day and I assume I mean I know that 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 has to be a challenge in terms of the way that we analyze election results and we kind of try and predict project what's going to happen if more votes are being cast at kind of central locations that report later in the night and like what's your experience of that Anthony in terms of how it's changed the work that you do? Oh, it's changed election night enormously. Um, it went with by-election was a classic example. There were four pre-poll voting centres and for some reason the AC didn't actually enter the middle about half past 11 at night, mm. which was well after all the polling place votes and the pre-polls was a completely different trend. It was quite different. Um, caused a lot of confusion the next morning along with some counting errors. But um, the last federal election, for instance, um, normally you'd have all the votes in every electorate in by 10 o'clock. We were there at midnight and half past 12, still waiting for some of the big pre-poll centres to come in. Mm. Uh, Victoria, we were having pre-poll centres arriving at two in the morning. It was an enormously difficult task. These are thousands and thousands and thousands of votes, you know, maybe 12, 15,000 votes. They take a long time to count. And it's 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 not a simple thing of saying it takes twice as long to do this many votes because you just have suddenly got so many more bits of paper and if you lose track of things, it's much harder to try and reconstruct what's gone on. Mm. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of difficulty because you're trying to reconcile roles. Victoria had to sort the ballot papers because there were multiple ballot papers in one box. It will lead to electronic pre-poll voting. Uh, the ACT already does that. They collect a fifth of their vote pre-poll electronically. Now, in the ACT, because they do data entry of ballot papers under Hare Clark, there's an advantage in collecting more of them electronically in the first mm. place. Mm. But I think you will. See, I think there are some experiments with this coming down the track. If we see electronic voting, it's going to be with pre-polls. It's not going to be on-the-day votes. It's just too expensive and too ridiculous to do it on the day. But if you've got a pre-poll voting centre, it's operating for two to three weeks, and you can use that pre-poll centre on the day as well, then you are collecting thousands and thousands of votes that be counted very easily. Electronic voting might be the solution to that problem. Apart from that, I mean, I don't know what the solution is to that 
to the the process taking so long. I mean, unless you you find ways to break prepole up into more smaller locations, but presumably that also adds to the cost and it means that you have more staff and they're there for two weeks rather than just one day and it all those sorts of things, you know, and obviously having the ease of counting on election night isn't the AEC's only concern. But it, you can do what they do in New Zealand. New Zealand counts its advance votes on the day before mm. the close of polls at seven. But the difference is in New Zealand, there's an absolute ban on any form of campaigning on election day. Yeah. So there's nothing else for party workers to do apart from count advance votes, uh, looking over the shoulders of the scrutineers. In this country, we have active campaigning on the day. Mm. So to do counting on the day requires the parties to make a, and candidates to make scrutineers available when they're, most of their staff are actually busy campaigning. So that's the, the, the problem they have with all this. It also creates the dilemma of secrecy around what is happening with the vote count. I mean, that was an issue with the marriage survey that votes were counted early and then they redesigned the system to make it impossible to know what the votes were doing, which has all sorts of problems. Jill? I was just going to pretty much agree with just what you said, Ben, that I think there are bigger problems here that are sort of structural um, you know, I'm sort of, I'm forever getting students who are writing essays saying, you know, we should only have uh, elections every four years because look at the savings, you know, look at look at all the money we can save by having fewer elections. And I always sort of think, well, that, that seems like always not the best reason to um, to be mucking with the electoral system and our democratic systems generally. Yeah. But the point, um, the point kind of stands here too, in my opinion, that, um, you know, while I'm sort of ambivalent about the, the net benefit of early voting, I do think there are issues around um, structural advantages to the major parties. Um, and and as Anthony pointed out, which wasn't something that I've really given much thought to before, but I think he's bang on, that when I vote, for instance, uh, prompts uh, vote choice in a different way, that's really having materially different uh, voting experiences for different voters. And this is something that we obviously try to avoid in Australia. We have a very centralised and standardised system of voting across the country, these little things will start to chip away at some of that, I don't want to say integrity because that lends itself to, you know, things like, voter, you know, ideas like voter fraud, but um, but it does start to chip away, I guess, at the, the robustness of our electoral system as it stands at the moment. People object to electronic voting alike, but I, the point I make is that elections are now the biggest event in Australia now done on paper. You know, I know the Electoral Commission's moved towards scanning in recent years because it's harder and harder to get people who've got data entry skills because that's the skill that's disappeared. Um, people in, who run shops and banks and tellers and stuff no longer have to balance a book and know how to add up a column down and, and, and row across. It's all sort of you keep scanning everything during the day and at the end of the day you hit a button and the computer says yes or no. Um, and I know the Electoral Commission's increasingly finding it difficult to find staff who know how to check things are right. Um, you know, it's, it's just the skills that are in quite required in do, doing this. I amazed one of my programmers the other day by adding um, eight five-digit numbers together by hand. He just looked at me and said, you can do that by hand. I said, I can do long division as well, if you ask. It's <laughs> very generational <laughs> I mean, the other thing about uh, the different experience of the, the ballot design with iVote, I mean, you, I could imagine a situation, particularly if more people were casting their votes that way, that if preferences are more likely to flow for an I vote than for another kind of vote, you can imagine that having an impact on an election because there might be demographic differences between the kinds of people who are travelling overseas and using I vote, or I'm not sure exactly how this would play out, but you could definitely imagine a situation where certain kinds of people are more likely to be casting I votes versus other methods, and that is affecting how powerful their vote is. It was an issue, particularly in the last state election um, with the upper house ballot paper, 
um, a mistake in the design meant that it always plonked you on the left-hand side of the ballot paper. And people might be familiar with scrolling up and down the screen, but they aren't always familiar with scrolling left and right. And the groups in the first four columns got significantly more votes than you would expect amongst I votes compared to everything else. Um, and that had some impact on the on the structure of the ballot. And this time, they've actually changed the program, so it will give you a vague image of the size of the ballot paper and then plonk you randomly on one of the columns. So, I mean, there are all sorts of peculiarities people don't think about with um, electronic voting. But then we have the same problem with paper ballots. Um, it's absolutely clear that if you appear to the left of a ballot paper yeah. in Australia, you you know, as the Liberal Democrats have shown, you can create confusion by people reading across. It's interesting, Liberal Democrats don't do as well where people have to number all the squares, but they do well where they read left to right and number the first occasion of the word Liberal. If you were to design uh, a ballot paper electronically from scratch, you probably wouldn't design it like a Legislative Council ballot paper, right? You would probably have various forms of drop downs or be able to see a list of the parties and then choose from below that you know you you do it very differently but because we most people vote by paper we try to replicate the paper ballot on a screen i think there's a problem with i mean like the, the iVote system is designed so you can use your your iphone your mobile phone yeah. um now i'm not sure i really like the idea of people voting in the upper house on their mobile phone um, I'm, I'm still of the view I vote should be rare. I vote is a limited thing. It's for mm. people who have difficulty voting. I'm a believer in attendance voting, not remote voting. I vote's a replacement for postal voting. It's not a replacement. It's not a form of electronic voting. As far as I'm concerned, I still believe even if you've got electronic voting, you should be coming into a centre and voting because this isn't like voting on Australian Idol. This is mm. something more important than that. And so it should be structured so it's indicated as being more important. So, I mean, you know, if you're doing it electronically in an venue you can ensure that the quality of the machine showing the the ballot paper is better um, that people aren't going to be as confused you can ensure that there's more security around the vote and things like that so um, I know there's a lot of work being done on this I mean because we it will come but the state and federal electoral commissions are going to have to actually they're looking at this setting up one authority for all the bodies in Australia to run electronic or internet voting because the state electoral officers themselves are not really big enough, especially the smaller states, to do this. They don't have enough staff. There's not enough experience over generations as people leave. You know, um, the Queensland Electoral Office, the last state election, had all sorts of problems running the election because the guy who'd run it for years had left and people didn't know how to set up the polling place records and all sorts of peculiarities mm. like that. So there's lots of strange things with technology that you forget about. And uh, um, electronic voting is going to make that starker. And also, don't forget... Um, we all joke about um, Russian hackers and the like, but um, what happens if a programmer gets threatened by one of these mobs? Mm. You know, how, how are they supposed to How are you supposed to stop them changing the code? That you need, if you've got one body, you can have more defence signals input to uh, to security in these issues. It's not even just about things actually going wrong, but it's also about a loss of trust about how those things work. Yes, and we saw that with the lost ballot papers in WA. Mm. Something like that just destroys trust and trust is very important we but then say to people we trust that nobody's going to interfere with the ballot papers afterwards um, it's a very similar process to to what happens um, a lot of the work i've people i've spoken to from overseas talking about electronic voting they talk about being able to track that your vote was counted correctly and then i say to them but we've got preferential voting here do you want to track your vote through all the preferences um the elect i vote system in new south wales allows you to check your vote most people mm -hmm. don't do it but I'd also suspect, and I've seen this from past research on Senate voting, most people walk, walk out the ballot paper, might not, out of the ballot box uh, station, won't be able to remember who they've given preferences to anyway. So 
Um, I know one of the proposals was I vote that you must check your vote afterwards in the same way that your mobile phone gets a little message saying you've done this bank transaction. But it's very difficult to do that with electronic voting because what happens if they don't respond? Does the vote get tossed away? Mm. And then do you find them for not voting? Yeah, this is stuff we really haven't thought through. And it worries me that it's it's kind of happening, you know, first of all, at a decentralised level and then in sort of dribs and drabs. And, and all of a sudden, it'll be a full-blown system. And as Anthony points out, you know, more and more people are using it. Oh, it's so convenient. It's great. The, the AEC led, the rec- led much of the work in development of electoral systems and new technology and change procedures in the 80s, but it's rather lost lost the, you know, it's no longer in the front of the pack. Mm. Um, some of the states are doing interesting stuff. You know, they're running by-elections and wiring up all the net, all the, the, the mark-offs to make sure that nobody's double voting. Um, most of the states do a lot more checking of whether someone is on the roll somewhere in the state so they're given the correct ballot paper. The federals don't. Um, the federals have not made me- nearly as many changes to counting procedures. Most of the states have centralised the counting of pre-poll voting and, and postal voting. The Commonwealth still sends them all back to the divisional returning offices. So if you vote absent for in Melbourne for Herbert in Queensland, that ballot paper's got to go back to Townsville before it's counted, where in most of the states it doesn't go back to the returning officer anymore. It's dealt with centrally. So there's a lot of changes, procedures which are occurring in the state which just haven't happened in the Commonwealth, and they've become slightly a little bit of a dinosaur in recent times. A growing list of independents have been putting their names forward in a number of normally safe coalition seats for the next federal election. We've seen former MP Rob Oakeshott is running for the Nationals' seat of Cowper. Uh, Sitting former Liberal MP Julia Banks is proposing a move to the Liberal seat of Flinders, and new independents have announced bids for the Liberal seats of Kooyong, Warringah and McKellar. And this follows on the success of Karen Phelps in last year's Wentworth by-election and victories for Rebecca Sharkey and Cathy McGowan in recent elections. Jill, why don't you start us off? Um, how, how do you see these contests in, impacting on the federal election? Well, there's obviously a move away from the major parties and um, it's great that voters who do want an option are, are getting, you know, really high-quality candidates they can vote for. You know, we've got a head full of steam about it, though, I think, across the country, that this is going to be, you know, paradigm-shifting and we're going to see a whole new flood of uh, independent candidates um, being elected to the House of Reps in particular, that, you know, this is going to change the the, the composition. You know, we, we could be looking at coalition-style governments and, uh, you know, it's all getting very Western European... The other thing that sort of gets lost in in a lot of the narrative, you know, particularly in the media, is that this isn't really a new thing. You know, after each of the the probably last four elections, there's been debate about, oh, you know, uh, we've got more independent candidates because of the group uh, group ticket voting or we've got more independent candidates because of the double dissolution election. And all of these things have certainly had an impact. But I think there's also a secular trend. You know, there's something underpinning this move that gets towards independence and, and minor party candidates that, you know, does get compounded uh, in election-by-election election circumstances, but it's certainly there. There's, the major parties are on the nose. Um, uh, they seem fairly oblivious about that fact. Um, so, look, it's going to be interesting, but I just, yeah, I sort of caution that it's A, not new, and B, probably not going to be the groundswell kind of um, systemic change that... Plenty of people are expecting. And, and I always say, don't write off the major parties because we've seen, you know, everyone's been writing about this year, for years. 
the decline of the major party vote has come much later to Australia than similar democracies like uh, New Zealand and, and, and England. The drop-off in major party support was massive in the 70s and continued. But both of those countries have swung strongly back to a two-party system in recent elections. Uh, so don't, don't write them off. My other comment on the independence is they're independence of a particular type. What you're, I think what you're seeing is two things. One is you're seeing a split in conservative politics at the moment and, and, and drive to, for a, a return to more liberal values in certain areas. So it's not an independence move. Nobody would be trumpeting how good independence were if they were conservative conservatives, um, which we've seen a lot of in country seats at state elections over the last two or three decades. I think the second thing that's interesting is they're all on about climate change and the like. And to me, it indicates how much the Greens haven't been able to own that subject that people who are interested in climate change in Liberal seats aren't voting for the Greens. Some of them want another alternative, which isn't a Green alternative, which is an expressive view on climate change. And I think that's what you're seeing in in all of these cases. But I do think there's a... Um, it's not a move to a particular... to independence as such. It's a move to particular independence, and they always... types of independence. And as I always say, I, I did figures on the last federal election there were 118 independents only seven of them of them got more than 10 percent and they all had to have a very high profile people will vote for a party even if they don't know the candidate but they will not vote for an independent that they don't know they have to know who these independents are before they get anything more than four percent um and most independents tend to top out about 10 to 15 percent because really they're not that well known the ones that do have a profile you know this election rob oakshop He's been an MP for years. Tony mm. Wins did very well. And nobody who's now championing all these independents said anything nice about Rob Oakeshott and, uh, and Tony Windsor before they put the Gillard government into office. They'd been sitting MPs for two decades and had done enormous work for the local area, but nobody noticed them until the Gillard government was put into power. And it shows the danger for independence is when you get onto the national stage on national issues, the people who elected you, who elected you for local stuff, get rather upset that you're spending time on, on, on this. Most independents come from country electorates. They deliver on local issues. It's much tougher for independents in the city. Clover Moore, who's the uh, most successful urban independent in modern times, only once got more than 40% of the vote. Once Tony Windsor was in office, he was getting 60 to 70% of the vote. Mm. Urban independents are not as well known, and it's much tougher for them. And I don't disagree that I think um, the... It's we're not going to see like a large number of people getting elected, but I do think there is a bit of a. I, I think I would say there's a bit of a moment right now for the Liberal Party where they are weakened and they have shifted themselves to the right, where it's kind of created an opening, and it's a it's a difficult opening to get through. But I, I do think that there's a there's potential for a few of them. Um, I think there's something in particular about Tony Abbott and his electorate that maybe maybe. Uh, is is a bit of an opening, but uh, I I think it's going to be very interesting to watch watch these people, and it's going to be a real challenge. And I think you know, in the end, no one is seriously suggesting that we're not going to have a parliament dominated by the major parties. But uh, you know, there's a, there's a few interesting races here, particularly uh, if the uh, the main Liberal Labor contest is uh, getting a bit dull. If the uh, if the polls don't move much back towards the Liberal Party, it might be an interesting side race to watch. Much of the competition for the Liberal Party in New South Wales is on the right. Mm. The New South Wales Liberal government is much more small L liberal. Mm. And so that's where you're seeing the breakout is on the right. Federally, the party's become more conservative. You're seeing the breakout in the middle. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, you know, I think the Liberal Party needs to kind of, well, I don't think this is, you know, uh, anything that no one else is saying, but it really needs to have a look at 
you know, how it structures itself ideologically going forward. But I think the Labor Party does too. And some of, you know, the candidates that we're looking at, the Karen Phelps types candidates, could easily be Labor Party candidates as well. They're, you know, to, you know, avoid going down this sort of, again, it's a real trope, right? But they're sort of a void in the centre at the moment. Usually our parties are so well aligned. They're, they're so incredibly ideologically proximate that we complain about not having a really good choice. At the moment, I think the multidimensionality of both parties is pulling them away from each other on certain aspects, you know, and, and climate change is one, obviously. Tax is going to start being another. Um, that it does, you know, create these little cracks in the concrete for independent uh, candidates to, to pop up. But it's a bit of a perfect storm. I don't know if we'll see circumstances quite like this again. Hopefully by uh, 2020, the major parties have uh, pulled their heads out of the sand. I think Anthony's right. And like in, New, uh, like in New Zealand, for instance, we'll come back around to being a very solid two-party ma- two major system. Although I think the Greens are there permanently. Um, but, I mean, they are the smaller of the left parties. Um, as I think Tony Blair once said, as long as the Labor Party has the connections with the unions, we will always be the larger of the left parties. And, uh, and I think that's something that's very strong in the Australian Labor Party thing. Um, I think we'll see what impact the new Senate voting system has this time, because I think we might start to see the disappearance of some of the micro-parties. I thought the Australian Conservatives under um, uh, Cory Bernardi were actually going to sweep up a whole bunch of right-wing parties. And in fact, what they seem to have done is alienated groups like Family First who've gone off and joined the Liberal Party instead. Um, you know, there's a room there for a Conservative Party, but they just, at the moment, they're still a bit torn about what they want to do. But uh, the, the the idea that a party can make its name now, be getting elected for some tiny vote, just is going to disappear. And the new Senate system might actually start to... I mean, I've, I've always argued that the minor party vote has gone up in the last uh, n- last 10 years. But it's gone to parties with a name in front of them. Nick Xenophon's team, Clive Palmer, Palmer United, Jackie Lambie Network, um, you know, Pauline Hanson's One Nation, Glenn Lazarus team. They've all got a name in front of them. These are independents. Mm. They are not parties. They are independents. Mm. And that's, that's um, we haven't seen, since the Greens, we haven't seen a new party emerge, which has actually made itself, a, you know, the Liberal Democrats have had a go. Palmer United had a go, but I mean, that was basically a vanity project for Clive Palmer. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a few, like, um, minor party mergers, a little bit of that. It hasn't gotten very far yet, though. I mean, was it, I think it was today, there was a story about uh, Catter's party and One Nation in Queensland kind of agreeing to cooperate and to not compete against each other. So I think we may see a bit of that, but I think it also butts up against a lot of the egos that drive a lot of these parties. Uh, and that's why, you know, there were half a dozen Christian parties a couple of years back, mainly because each each of the person that was running those Christian parties didn't get on with one of the others. Mm. Um, but we have seen, say, um, Animal Justice Party has emerged recently and it's sort of eating into a green vote in certain seats. And you can say the Victorian election, if you look where the green vote went down, it was nearly always where there was an Animal Justice Party candidate. Mm. So, you know, perhaps you know, the Greens have got their own little problem in that area as well, I think, though the sort of inner city seats where they're competing with Labor, that's less of a problem for them. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you to Anthony and Jill for joining me. Anthony, thank you. Thank you. And uh, give a plug to the ABC election website that I've done for, for New South Wales. I know you're competing with yours, Ben, but um, I, leave, I leave you to do the maps and I look after the candidates. <laughs> <laughs> um, and thanks, Jill. No, thanks heaps, Ben, and thanks, Anthony. Thanks. 
You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. This show is recorded in the studios of 2SER Radio in Sydney. Thanks for Chris DeBro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.